priests deal with the with the divine stuff of life. We deal with the intimate parts of people's lives. We're at bedsides when people are dying. Um, we're at homes after babies are born. We baptize infants, initiating them into a journey. We hear confessions of people's darkest secrets sometimes. And we see people week in, week out, in the most boring times of life, when they're just showing up because that's what they do. Hello and welcome. Happy for you to be joining. Late August in 2017, a massive hurricane was hovering over the coast of Texas for many days, um, going back and forth. Um, It seemed to be it it went inland um, and up and kind of uh, northwest and then came back out to the coast, scooped back down, and then went up the coast. And so it was a, it was a several, it was a, a long event. And the winds were estimated to be around 130 or 140 miles an hour. And the epicenter of that storm was over a, a number of Texas communities. One in particular is called Port Aransas. Just to give you a bit of perspective, we were devastated here in Houston with floodwaters. I was standing in a yard of a neighborhood at one point with water that was coming into my waders that were at my chest. So I was, I was having to stand up a bit taller because the floodwaters were so high. And three hours south of Houston is Port Aransas, and they too were uh, inundated with not only floodwaters, but with extreme winds. And today's participant is highly involved in the community down there. His name is James Durkitz, and he's an Episcopal priest at Trinity by the Sea. And we're dear friends, and I have been kind of living, understanding and relating with the community down there through him. And during the, the time that we recorded this interview, we had just returned from a drive through the city and I saw uh, uh, such devastation e- even several months after, but now it's, it seems to be estimated that in, in those communities there are still a number, if not, and one, one article said 50% of residents aren't, aren't back, but I, I don't know if that's true, but I know it's a lot still. So James has been vo- involved in a number of projects helping the community, but also people in the community being able to stay in the community. And I'll, I'll link this on the website. Through their church, they created a um, Homes for Displaced Marlins. You can certainly look that up and uh, learn more. 
we have led a retreat together for a number of years and in the we're actually on the retreat it, the it was 5 months ago when this was recorded we're we're leading that retreat back in January uh, and we were able to get away to record this conversation uh, it 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 serves its purpose listening to it today i was i was just very excited to reflect on it and uh and hear what it does when when you when you can kind of intentionally have a conversation like this so uh, a couple things of note uh, the music you're hearing, the theme music is Clouds by Modern Nations. You can get them at modernnationsmusic.com. And James, uh, he is also a musician, and so I'll be including some of his music at the very end uh, off one of his newest albums. And uh, then I'll be doing that subsequently. Each podcast, I'll be bringing in new bands, new artists to play out the uh, at the very end of the conversation and I'll let you know who it is in these intro pieces. Um, I think I think just a note because I'm kind of starting to expand things out a little bit regarding the the choice of uh, participants. And really, what I'm after here is is to to investigate what, what I what I believe to be really religious and spiritual content. You know how how one orients themselves to meaning in life. You know what matters most to people. And I'm looking to, to have long-form conversation, and um, sometimes that can meander a bit, but that's I, really what I'm after, is a, a deeper conversation. And I want to explore events that are very everyday and ordinary, but also have this kind of profound otherness to them. I'm looking at birth, life, death, trauma, love, meaning, and my th- theory is that as we can talk to people about their experiences, we, we can also come to see those experiences more readily in our own lives. And, um, and I think that we can experience a pretty profound shift if we're all approaching life with that kind of attitude. So uh, what else did I have here? I've got, I'm, I've got a couple of notes that I want to get to. So, yeah, again, the conversation that we had is in January, so it's been months since having this, but it's, it's appropriate. We're, we're really looking at not only definition of terms, but kind of how James's life has, has changed and how the community's life has changed after a catastrophic storm. Uh, it definitely was a catastrophic storm. So if you're looking for James, you can get him at James dash Durkitz. My dog is over there making noise. James dash Durkitz dot blog, And his, uh, Trinity by the org is his church. Um, I, I think that in, in the spirit of, um, of kind of talking about what this podcast is about, I want to say that on the website, I have a quote, um, the website is thesacredspeaks.com. It's from Machea Eliade, and I hope I'm saying that name correctly. By manifesting the sacred, any object becomes something else, yet it continues to remain itself, for it continues to participate in its surrounding cosmic milieu. And that's that's kind of at the essence of uh, of this project. So thanks for coming along on the uh, on the ride. So I want to read James's haiku-like uh, <laughs> bio. And, uh, and then we'll get started. Things about James. He grew up uh, in Silsby, Texas, went to college in San Marcos, Texas, is married to Laura Durkitz, 
has a son named Eli. He's an Episcopalian priest, lives in Port Aransas. He's a musician. He loves being outdoors, and he pays attention to his dreams. And uh, this is a this is such a gift to be able to communicate with someone who I'm, I'm I'm very close with James and I've been friends for years and um, and you'll you'll certainly hear a lot of this in the interview so I'll leave it there and stay tuned afterwards for uh, for James's song cactus flowers I kind of feel like this is a this is different in in usually and I haven't done a ton of these but usually when when doing these I go to somebody's office or you know I go to their space and I set up and then we get started but this feels interesting in that it is kind of we, we you and I have had such um an ongoing conversation in our friendship mm-hmm. but also in the in this where we find ourselves Mm-hmm. Uh, at this retreat, so I'm here with James Durkitz, who's you know not only one of my closest friends but uh, companions in this work that we do together. We're currently I'm staring at the ocean, which is different for me, not for you. <laughs> uh, I'm on his home turf, and we happen to be leading a retreat together this this week, and we've taken the opportunity to record uh, this conversation, which I'm really grateful for. Um, thank you for being here with me in this space. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting me to do it. Yeah. I think uh, just to set, to frame this in a little bit, we just had to run to the grocery store and pick up a few things. And we were able to look around at the community that has been so affected by this massive, um, event of nature, the hurricane Harvey. And it's my first time down here with with you, and to be able to see it. And I know I'm even even though it's it's been months, um, you know, it, it it is still very apparent that something devastating happened. Mm-hmm. So we're we're both in that space, and um, really, this is this is just um, a. a an opportunity of, of doing this kind of thing, being able to have these conversations with people that I love and respect and get to explore in a different way. Cause we, you know, despite having conversations that you and I have, this is not the typical thing with these right. microphones. <laughs> so, uh, let's kind of, I'm going to take some headphones off and toast you and, uh, cheers. cheers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, we so uh, you know to let to let those of you listening in on you know what's what's happening is that we've we've been having these conversations about why even have this kind of conversation, and so I want to give you James an opportunity to kind of talk about um, your area, your area, and you know the the kind of hit the greatest hits around philosophy and religion and kind of the the course of life that brought you to where you are. Mm-hmm. Um, and then get into some kind of definition of terms, and um, you know, I'm 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 less concerned about um, kind of objectively defining terms, and more interested in how you've come to orient yourself to these various 
terms, phenomena, and, and um, experiences. Right. And then also kind of move into uh, what's happening now in your life and how mm-hmm. things have been going since, um, uh, you know, pre, pre-storm, post-storm. Mm-hmm. So, if you would, just give the, give the listener and myself a, an opportunity to kind of hear, hear about you and some of your life story. All right. Well, thanks again for the chance to talk and be in this space. And um, it is interesting to be doing this on our Discovering Wholeness <laughs> retreat um, because we're, we, we're introspective on these things and um, exploring who we are. And so, um, it, which on the one hand makes me aware that whatever part of me I share, I know that there are other parts that I'll be either neglecting or forgetting or even hiding. Um, <clears throat> but I am, uh, yeah, my name is John James Durkitz the third and my father, um, is John James Durkitz jr. And, um, he is one of the most religious people I know. And he is religious in a sense of having, a consistent practice. He and my mother have a consistent practice and, um, participate in our Episcopal church, um, have their whole lives. And that shaped me in ways I'm only beginning to understand. So the container for my kind of perspective is an, an Episcopal, um, Christian container. And I share that because I'm an Episcopal priest and, um, however aware, unaware I was when I started on my journey to becoming an Episcopal priest, I'm aware that they planted seeds and gave me gifts, um, early in life that I'm just starting to, to unpack. Um, I, um, lived a lot of life in Houston, which is where we met, of course, Mm -hmm. Um, and that's another important container for who I am. And in Houston, uh, post-college, I was able to begin, uh, kind of orienting myself, not just to, um, the, the Episcopal church, but stumbled into the Jungian perspective, um, through the Jung Center Houston and, um, working with Pittman McGee and the clergy support group that I was a part of. And that was, that was a point of opening up my understanding, setting me off on a journey that I'm can, I'm still on, um, and building on what I'd, what I'd received up to that point in my life. And my, at that point I was in my mid twenties. And so who I am is, um, I am an Episcopal priest. I've been shaped by this practice as much or as little as I was practicing at any point in my life, but it's kind of the waters that I've been swimming in. And since that point, um, of entering into the Jungian world, um, I've, I've started to explore it in ways, um, that, that were different and more meaning oriented rather than dogmatic. And that's not to say that I received, a strict dogmatic teaching. Um, I grew up saying the creeds in church. I grew up, um, receiving communion, 
but it was always just part of the what we did, um, part of our practice more than if you don't believe this, you're wrong or you're cast out or anything like that. So it was a natural move to kind of go from, um, or to, to begin a dialogue with Jung and the Jungian writings. Um, but I've, I think my kind of the, the perspective that I carry has always been, or what I've sought to carry is that, um, as I go through life and discover things, it just becomes something to throw in the pot of soup and to keep making things richer and richer. Um, and what was in the soup before just contributes to the, to the flavor, um, and to the richness of it. Ah, oh, the soup metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> I, like I don't cook, so I, I shouldn't be using, <laughs> I do cook a little bit. I shouldn't really be using soup metaphors, but that's, that's just kind of what I carry in my mind is that, mm-hmm. um, and that's from my, that's just kind of the open, op, openness of the church I was raised in. It was never, um, it never, I've never not been able to ask the questions that I need to ask. I guess that's how I've always felt. I've always been able to ask the questions I need to ask. No one's ever said you can't ask that. So on my journey through Houston, I feel like that was a time of, um, learning of growing, of expanding, of experimenting, um, learning the craft of being a priest, learning what it means to be myself as a priest, finding my voice in preaching, finding the courage to speak um, from my own perspective and not to an audience that I'm imagining, which is what I get into a lot. Um, I, my fears around preaching are usually about some imagined, um, I don't know, some imagined rebuttal or some imagined uh, fundamentalist dogmatic criticism. Um, I've, I still carry that, that sort of fear within me. But in Houston, I had the colleagues and the encouragement to, to find my voice and in our conversations to practice being who I am and not only to mix the soup of my own belief in life, but to learn how to talk about that with others, how to share that. And that's been life giving to myself and to others. So toward the end of my time in Houston, um, something, well, Eli was born. I have a son, Eli, who's seven now. Laura, my wife and I had Eli, um, in 2010 and, um, he is a big part of what started to shake things up in my soul, um, and start to think about the life I choose instead of the life that was kind of laid out or what I perceived to be laid out for me. And so that led to some deep conversations and searching. And, um, we found this little Island home in Port Aransas, Texas, um, a place that I've visited for years, but never, um, thought that it would be possible for 
someone like me to to be the priest here. I didn't feel like I was allowed to want to be here. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, but with Eli and thinking about what gifts I wanted to give to him, um, we we sought to move here. And in Port Aransas, what I found, the beach is beautiful. The bay is amazing. Learning to surf has been a life lesson in itself. Um, but the community is such a mixture of people and perspectives. And um, maybe because so many come, many people come here to vacation, there's a sense of welcome and um, whoever you are, just come on in. So when I arrived at Trinity by the Sea, I I thought, I can work with this. I mean, these are my people. They say, come on in. We'll figure it out. If you don't believe what we believe, that's okay. We're on this journey together, and we can support each other. So since I've been here, I've um, found a, a community that is open enough and encouraging enough to me um, to kind of in a sense, finish becoming a priest. Um, not that other communities I've been a part of weren't, but for some reason, this community, I've found a kinship, um, and I've been able to do some, some formation here that I wasn't ready for or wasn't able to do in other places. One time I was sitting in Pittman McGeehee's office waiting for our clergy support group to start. And um, someone else walked through and said, oh, you're another one of those priests. And Pittman was right behind me. He said, no, he's just starting to become a priest. Mm. And I get that more. I trusted him when he said it. I didn't really like it, but (laughs) (laughs) I trusted there was some truth to it. And uh, now I kind of get that. Um, and what I think what he meant was just growing into it and learning to trust myself to be a priest and priests deal with the, with the divine stuff of life. We deal with the intimate parts of people's lives. We're at bedsides when people are dying. Um, we're at homes after babies are born. We baptize infants, initiating them into a journey. We hear confessions of people's darkest secrets sometimes. And we see people week in, week out, in the most boring times of life, when they're just showing up because that's what they do. And so becoming a priest does take time. It takes practice. It takes living in a community for a while. We just, at Trinity, we just buried a man named Bill Calhoun, Father Bill. And he was the priest at Trinity for a time. And it, that experience of both being at his bedside and officiating at his funeral um, made me think about what people might say when I, when I die. Not that I have a script in mind <laughs> that I'd like them to read, but just seeing what he meant, his presence meant to others made me think about what my presence might mean to, to others. 
Um, there's also a big weight with being a priest, just all of that intimate stuff, all that the privilege of being in the midst of people's lives is also a burden to carry. And we've talked about that, mm -hmm. how to help, how to carry that in a healthy way, how to balance that and, and what, how to maybe get back on track when I'm not dealing with it in a healthy way. There's so many, um, threads I want to pull on here. It's interesting when I think about doing these conversations, it's almost like I, I put on this hat of just basic level definitions and questions. Mm -hmm. And you've said a, n a number of things that I think, depending on somebody's orientation or perspective, they, they have their own associations with sure. who yeah. you are and what's going on. And the first thing that I, that I want to help, that I want to ask, and, I, and, and with the mind of a listener who doesn't know you, and I'm imagining people's, you know, the wide range of culture and how we approach each other when we talk about things like religion or philosophy or, you know, our kind of core perspectives around what, you know, how the world works, uh, universe. Um, what, what do you, what is a priest? Hmm. What does that mean to you? Yeah. Um, so I think I'll bring in some of my, my own journey toward Please. the priesthood. My, yeah. I mean, my more recent journey that's happened since I've been in Port Aransas. Um, and there was, so I've, you know, I, as, as I said, I, I was in Houston, got this formative experience, learned my voice. And, um, not long after I came to Port Aransas, I went on one of these retreats and, um, after leaving Houston, I didn't have my, my support group. I didn't have, I didn't, um, visit with my analyst for a while. And, and, and struggled because of it just with the day in day out. Um, so I went on one of these retreats and as I was able to move from the life of the church and the life of my family and the small town that I live in and have this free space, I had a tangible um, experience of my priesthood dying. And at the time, it was so scary to me the the night that I realized I I could not be a priest anymore. I thought that I was going to have to wake up in the morning and call my wife, Laura, and say, I'm sorry, we can't live in Port Aransas anymore. I'm going to have to find a new job. I can't, I can't do this anymore. And fortunately, she said, hell no. I love Port Aransas. We just got here, and it's a great place. So figure it out. <laughs> so from there... Um, I had to figure it out and I had to come home and I had to stand behind the altar and I had to recite the prayers and I had to feed people the body and blood of Christ as we say. And I didn't know what I believed in that time. And so what I had to get to, um, or what I did get to, I don't know if I had to, I could have, I suppose I could have, 
actually left. I could have bailed. Um, but instead, I decided to fake it on the one hand and figure out what I was being a priest to and for on the other hand. And so the language that I used was to say, I'm being a priest to the mystery. So what that meant, back to your, what is a priest? Um, I knew I have had enough experiences in my life, a lot of times in nature, but also in community, um, enough experiences to know that there is something more than what I can see that there is a dimension of connectivity, um, something that seems to bind us together and seems to move through all the universe um, that is mysterious to me and that I honor and respect. And so as I stood and said on the night before he died for us, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread, said the blessing, broke the bread, and gave it to his disciples. As I was saying that, I was speaking it in behalf of this mysterious force that I trusted the people who were gathered there were also seeking. So while I couldn't, you know, if, if, we, if we got real concrete and someone said, well, do you believe those words that you're saying? And do you believe that they happened like you're saying them? I would have had to say, I, don't, I just don't know. Mm-hmm. But somebody experienced something in Jesus that moved them to tell this story again and again until here in Port Aransas, it was my turn to share the story. So the mystery for me at the time was in that. And so I, I could be completely authentically me with all my doubts and my unbeliefs and also with integrity offer bread and wine in the to a community and tell them this is the body of God. And so what a priest for me now what a priest does is creates a container where people can have a religious experience where they can be transformed. A priest invites people to to step out into those bits of mystery in their life where they're not sure says it's okay to not be sure, but there's something moving and it's okay to be curious about that and move through it. And a priest keeps the story that's been passed down for generations and tends it and looks at it again and reexamines it and finds new dimensions and says, this isn't some historical document that we're reading. This is actually something that's coming to life in you. Whenever you're ready to pay attention to that reality that, you know, when Jesus is born in a manger, it's not about the date and which star was over overhead at the time in history. It's about the star of our lives that we orient toward whenever something new is being born in us. Mm-hmm. And so the story passes down that wisdom from generation to generation. So now as a priest, you know, I moved through that something new and much grander was born in me through that experience. And now it's not 
do I believe that or do I believe that? I, I, I know that there's something. I know that there is God, and this is the language that I've been given. And so I tend it, and I offer people a container, or I help create a container. It's not like I've got something that I give to people. It's that I'm willing to gather people together and say, hey, let's, let's move through this together. Let's go through these stories. Let's remember that this is happening within us. Let's get in touch with the spiritual dimension of life. Um, let's pay attention to those weird things that happen to us. And let's see if there's a story in the Bible that where that same thing happened to someone else and what they thought about it. Um, so a priest is not, or me, my understanding of my priesthood um, is not about believing the right things at the right time. It's not about memorizing a dogma. It's about me being born within a particular tradition and learning it and learning to navigate in it and learning to pull at the threads of the story and be with people in the midst of their lives and say, Hey, that's like this. Your experience is a little bit like this. Or when we read the gospel on Sundays and there's a story about um, Lazarus being raised from the dead, I invite people to consider what part of their own life is dead. Where is the death in their life? What part of them has died sitting cold and stinky, stinky in a tomb and needs to hear the voice of Jesus saying, Get up! Come, come back to life. Bring that back to life. What do you mean when you say, um, you know, body and blood, Christ, mm -hmm. right? Because again, I'm, I'm, I'm paying attention to you with, you know, simultaneously with the mind of curiosity and also uh, a real sensitivity and compassion to people that, that don't know that mm -hmm. that language. Mm -hmm. And don't and certainly don't have the same kind of representation um, and connection with that 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 you know figure or word. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So again, take take us into what that means to you. Okay. <clears throat> so, just for definition's sake, Christ is a Greek word, Christos, and um, the Hebrew equivalent is Messiah. Um, and both of those words mean anointed one, the one who's been anointed. So what anointing, which is about putting oil on somebody at a very primitive level, when you put oil on, um, I think of lip balm, you know, <laughs> we put oil on our <laughs> lips all the time, right? That's pretty common. Um, we don't use oily oil too much now except in cooking, but we, but whenever we put oil on something, it changes the quality of it. It's healing. It's nurturing. It was used in a, as a healing element in those times, but, and it was also a luxury to get some oil was a pretty special thing. So when Kings were anointed or when Kings were made Kings, it would be, they pour oil on them. And so 
King David was the anointed one. He was the Messiah in his own time. So calling this this guy Jesus the the anointed one um, was the way that the church looked at him as the new king. And that this I want to just name that this is all masculine language, um, and that's the way the story's been inherited. Um, but I would invite listeners to switch the genders as as necessary because it's really not about the masculinity of Jesus or of God. Um, if God is God, then there's no th- then God is masculine and feminine. Yeah, in fact, and we've lost that. I think in currently there was an androgynous nature to mm-hmm. the divine early on, and yeah. somehow that's and angels there. Yeah, they're genderless. Um, and Jesus did a lot of really feminine things. Um, historically, it probably wouldn't have worked for a woman to be the Messiah um, in his historical context. But Jesus was quite feminine. He, he did things that were, I mean, he fed people. He cared for people. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of imagery of, um, at one point, you know, Jesus talks about brooding over Jerusalem like a mother hen. But that, so that, I just want to kind of name that briefly. And, um, but the, the kingship or the rulership, the reign of Christ, the Christ word, the Messiah word, the anointed word, is about Jesus in role, the role of of the new king and he's ushering in a kingdom that's not bound by geography. So the, the expected Messiah was going to come back. The expected Christ was going to come back and make, you know, bring Israel, make Israel great again. Back to the good old days, (laughs) kick Rome out. (laughs) And what Jesus taught was that that, which we we're still not catching on to that old way of the state being what it's all about is gone. He was what he was king of, um, was the kingdom of, of God. It was about his kingship of the spiritual dimension. And so when we in the church, when we're baptized, when we're initiated into this citizenship, when we're initiated as citizens of the kingdom of God, I don't think many Christians um, pay attention to this, but what we're saying by that ritual is that we are now members of the spiritual kingdom that doesn't have borders, um, that's not bound by geography, but is about a way of being in the world. And the way we're nurtured on that journey and the way Jesus ultimately showed the way he would be king was not by kicking Rome's ass and bringing Israel back. Um, it wasn't by taking over a throne and uh, securing power for himself. It was by giving up everything, giving up his life. And that's the crucifixion. He offered all that he was and all that he had. And he, and through that, he was transformed. Then we get to, he, he did not we didn't jump to Easter. We didn't fast forward, skip all the suffering. He had this period of suffering 
And the oldest creeds even say he went down into hell. And then he was resurrected. So the transformation was through this path of suffering. And then when he came back, and before he did that, (laughs) he said, I'm the way, so you're going to have to do this too. I'm going to lead the way. I'm going to show you. I'm going to free you from being bound by any other um, alliances. When you're initiated into this kingdom, you're going to be able to follow this way too. You're going to be able to find, take up your own cross, find your own journey. You're going to go through suffering. You're going to have to look deep within. You're going to have to go through your own hell, wherever that comes from. Not that we go seeking that out, but the world will provide the suffering. And after you go through that, you're going to be transformed. And so when we drink the blood and eat the body of the Christ, we're eating the food for the journey. We're participating. We're becoming, you know, we are what we eat. We become the Christ. We become the word Christian means little Christ. In Greek, it's Christoi. And so by participating in literally what we what I put on the altar on Sundays is a little round wafer of bread and a silver chalice that has port wine in it. And when, when we say the blessings over those, we say that this bread is becoming Jesus's body and this wine is becoming Jesus's blood. And our Western minds might want to go, well, how does that happen? <laughs> you know, is there molecular change? <laughs> um, and the word for that, if, if you believe that it becomes a new substance, um, is sometimes referred to as transubstantiation. And that's the belief that there is some kind of reorganization of the molecules and, or I'm not sure how they think it works, but it, it changes substance, transubstantiation. And then the less, um, the, maybe the other end of the spectrum is just, Oh, we're just remembering this story and we're kind of doing a little drama and remembering something that happened a long time ago. And what my church has taught me, um, is not to go one way or the other, but to say there's a real presence there. And that's the way we talk about it. The real presence, um, it points to a mystery that's happening when we all gather around, remember the journey that Jesus took. He died. He was buried. He was resurrected. There's this thing that happened to him. And then we eat the body and blood. We eat the bread and the wine. And that's our sustenance for the journey. It's how we tell ourselves, keep going. God has been through this. God has been with you through this. And God will continue to be with you through this. Even like me, when what you thought of as God completely goes away, there's still God with you. So I continue to take communion Um, I continue to share in the body and blood of Christ, even when I didn't know how to think about it. I just allowed myself to participate in a mystery that was beyond my intellect at the time. Or actually, no, which was somewhat offensive to my intellect at the time. 
Yeah, it's probably a better way to say that. I hope I can do my part to share a different perspective that's about mystery and it's about being who we are. I mean, you know, one of the ways I think that God is at play in our lives is um, just this imagined idea that God has God has in mind who we're becoming. And one way to get in touch with God is to become who God made us to be, that we kind of fulfill our purpose um, as we seek and follow those nudges that are deep and sometimes unexplainable. I mean, it's what led me to Port Aransas. Moving to Port Aransas was a pretty illogical move. As far well, as I remember the, you know, the, <laughs> the lead up in the execution of all that. Yeah, it was, it was, it was weird. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it was rough. I had to say no to, to authorities and to offers and, you know, the, a, uh, even a church career counselor probably would have advised against it, but my soul invited me on this adventure. And what the adventure has led to, if we can talk about Harvey a little bit now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because purpose, my purpose right now, um, we've been through this miserable storm. I spent five years before Hurricane Harvey came through. I spent five years getting to know my town. I spent five years getting to know my church, building relationships, um, teaching learn, you know, going on my own hellish journey. Um, and it all seems like it was just in time. Mm -hmm. So when Harvey rolled through, Laura and I were coming back into Port Aransas, having watched on TV from college station, the eye of the storm go right over our home. And, um, Laura said, Port Aransas is about to find out what the Episcopal Church is all about. And what that meant was we we want to be there. We want to show up for our community. We want to open up the doors as fast as possible. We want to welcome people in. We want to see where there are gaps. We want to see where people are still waiting for a FEMA check and give them 500 bucks to get through the month so they can pay rent. We want to be the supply store for the first month until the city can organize enough to create a space for supplies to be. We want to deploy volunteers out into the community. We want to tear down drywall. We want to be a presence. And that's, um, for me, that's, that's where God becomes tangible. I mean, that's where we live into being the body of Christ because the body of if you know back to the kingdom of god if if we are in a kingdom of god then everybody's a member everybody's a citizen so it's not about whether you've been to church or not it's about do you need something let us see if we can help you out one of the things that we've done at trinity by the sea since since hurricane harvey um i think it was four days after harvey hit Um, So I got back one night, looked around, um, looked at my house, which was just 
destroyed. I mean, the, it was standing, but the inside was completely a mess, had water everywhere. And I think to that point, it's important, you know, our several conversations, mm-hmm. a lot of times people don't understand, you know, what even months after what I just saw. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're, I've seen some images of, of, that you've posted and sent over, and it was devastating. Mm-hmm. And that storm, my understanding of it, it, it obliterated yeah. so much of the city. And, uh, you know, things are just starting to get back into place. So for, for, for anybody listening, it, it, you know, what were the winds? It was like 130 miles an hour, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, the, the report is 130. There's one weather um, station that broke at 160. Yeah, and I mean, that... dr- drive, down, drive down the highway at 70 miles an hour and stick your hand out the window. Mm-hmm. And, you know, multiply that by... By two, at by least. Two. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, that was a sustained power that was um, forcing itself upon the city for right. an extended period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's powerful. Yeah, it, it rolled through, and it we were on the side um, that had the wind coming from the land out back out to the Gulf. And because we're on an island, all the bay waters are what washed over our island. Mm. So besides the wind, um, many parts of the city had, you know, you saw the fence earlier, six foot fence that had um, bay grass all the way up. And so water and wind, um, I guess the best way to say it is there were a couple of, or there were some buildings that made it without a whole lot of damage but most most of the buildings got significant damage and sometimes it was from a flood you know floodwaters there's one neighborhood that was full of water Uh, all the houses it was you know the old timers didn't build there in that neighborhood Um, and it was developed and then those waters came right through from the bay um, people tend to think of what is coming off the Gulf, what the storm surge might do from the Gulf side. But you know, it, it took me a month to really wrap my head around the direction of things. Everything came from the Bay side and, uh, just ravaged our town. Um, I had friends who were, who came in early, early and were able to a friend who's building a highway out there and he helped clear the streets and was, you know, pushing boats and telephone poles and bay grass and people's homes out of the street so that we could just drive in. And for a while it was like a narrow, you know, you could barely fit two cars down the main street of town because on the edges were all the rubble. So it, it, you know, Port Aransas being an island and, uh, you know, we're limited in our land resources. We have a lot of wetlands and we're also a tourist destination. So it's really expensive to live here. So the locals, um, who don't make a whole lot of money, they're going to rent instead of own. And that puts them in a situation where they weren't able to to come back because they had no power to rebuild their own, the, the home that they had been living in. It was up to the landlords who were probably rebuilding their own home at the time. So the need 
has just been so overwhelming. Um, and talking to Jim Hollis, my analyst, he gave me early, early on, I called him and we spoke weekly, um, on the phone. He's in Washington DC now, but we spoke weekly on the phone and, uh, early on he gave me a definition of trauma as, um, an introduction of so of more energy than a system can manage at one time. So, you know, apply that to Harvey. There's too much energy for our, there was too much energy in that storm for our town to absorb. So it just rocked it. It destroyed it. Mm -hmm. And then on the personal level, just comprehending the level of need, and the loss i mean i'm still finding parts of the town that i haven't hadn't seen since harvey and trying to understand it's just too much it's traumatic so i'm spending my own my time trying to process it myself take care of myself um, while being present you know being a citizen of the kingdom of god which doesn't really care um, about whether someone is a member of the church or had money before the storm or what condition their house was before the storm. Our job is just about helping to build up the community. The way we talk about it at Trinity is um, in our, in our uh, mission statement, it's to be a spiritual and charitable resource of God's love in our community. So, we opened up the doors and we started praying every day at eight o'clock. Um, whenever we have volunteers, people come in and they pray. And those volunteers have been Christians and atheists and they've been Episcopalians and they've been fundamentalists and they've been non-denominational. Um, but we just stop. It doesn't matter what brand your religion is we just stop for a minute and get grounded before we go do our work. And that's been a huge, I mean, back to the practice of my parents, Mm -hmm. like I knew what to do, not because of my own searching and my own, um, even my own hellish journey. I knew what to do because my parents get up and pray every day. And so I reached back into my history and drew that out and knew that's what we do and started opening the doors and praying. And my back to my purpose, I feel like it's weird to say it cause I don't like, I don't like being locked in. Mm-hmm. I mean, I like punk rock, you know, I don't want you to tell me what to do. <laughs> and yet my sense of being fulfilled and my purpose for being in this, on this Island at this time, It's just like, I feel like I was made for this moment. Not that I'm solving every problem, not that I'm fixing things, but just to be here and be part of this rebuild and be part of the community reformation. I feel so fulfilled, so much meaning and it exhausts me and it's hard. It's been a rough year. And yet I feel like I'm right where I'm supposed to be. I mean, and that's illogical. <laughs> I mean, that's uh, doesn't make sense, but it's my experience. 
Well, you, you said you do the prayer at 8 a.m. And then you go to work. Yeah. How's, how's the... How's work changed for you? <laughs> um, gosh, every day is a new adventure. I bet. I, uh, you know, it's, we've, we're moving into a different, like, so we are, it's, uh, mid January. Harvey came through August 25th. We're coming up on five months. And early on, it was all about um, meeting immediate needs, which um, that was the when we were the supply depot. You know, people didn't have anything because their homes were blown away. And so from all across the country, all these supplies started showing up. So we, we had a roof, even though our floor was a little soggy when you stomped on it. Um, we opened up our doors and we became the supply depot for a, a little while. Just to give a f geographical frame of reference, I mean, this is a town of 3,800, 3,500, 3,500 people. And the church is this beautiful building and your home is on the grounds of yeah. the church. And mm -hmm. it's really nestled up right in the middle of a neighborhood about... Mm -hmm five blocks from the beach mm -hmm. and you know, the entry into the beach is about a quarter to half a mile away. Yeah. You know, and James drives around in a golf cart. <laughs> um, or on a bike or on a bike. <laughs> <laughs> so to just to frame, I think that's important to frame in a little bit again, yeah. you know, so much of this is about defining terms and helping us. Yeah. Right. Yeah. When we communicate, cause uh -huh. we're, we're really using a lot of terms that people take for granted um, and certainly trigger uh, yeah, and carry a lot right. of meaning mm -hmm. um, that and so I just just to get an idea to frame that in and you know he, he, he his the church really is centrally I mean I guess not centrally because you're so close to the beach but it's located in the middle of community right really smack yeah. in the middle of it yeah um, so just to plant that, I think that's important. Yeah. So our, our, um, you know, whatever the fate, what the way my work has changed, uh, in, in a sense, it's, it's exactly the same. I mean, it's about being with people, um, being community, you know, being a spiritual and charitable resource to people. Uh, the intensity of the need early on was, just constant. We, um, and another important part of the priesthood is, and, and the way my work maybe didn't change, but was amplified in a sense. Um, we empower the laity. We, we empower our communities to do the work they need to do. And one of the ways I got to do that was this guy, Walter soul. Um, again, the guy who was there early on and helped clear the streets. He, because he was there early on by himself or with a, just a few people, he got to reflect on what was about to happen. And maybe he was clearing the street in front of the school, but he was definitely thinking about the school because his daughters go to our elementary school. And he was thinking about all those uh, lower income renters who wouldn't have a place to come home to. 
and their kids not being back at the school. In a small town, it doesn't take too long of knocking students out uh, that you lose a school, or at least it gets threatened. And uh, so he started thinking about how to bring people back home. Came up with this idea of buying RVs, which in Port Aransas, RV is not a bad word. A lot of people live in RVs. It's just the affordable housing option on, on this island for a lot of people. Um, and so he, he said, okay. You know, he talked to me about it, talked to a handful of people, and had this audacious goal of 20 RVs raise $400,000 by 20 RVs and we can get, you know, 30 kids back in the school just a little bit to help out. Well, it worked. <laughs> um, we've so far put 30, 35 families in homes. We've brought back at least 50 students into our school and we've got 125 students total before Harvey. So whatever percentage that is, um, and we've got a handful that we're still working on. We've raised close to a million dollars and that's donations from, um, you know, Yeti was a donor and Yeti coolers and a private donor gave $200,000, an anonymous donor and a homeless guy on the beach gave us $5 because the word spread and people saw that this was a good thing. And somehow that's God for me. I mean, when that sort of stuff happens again, it's illogical. Why would somebody give their money away for some family they don't know to have an RV? Well, I don't know. That's kingdom of God stuff. That's what the kingdom of God looks like to me. It's not about church structures. The church is hopefully um, the steward of teaching about that kind of stuff and nurturing people in their journey. But it's not about the building or the institution or the bishop or the priest. I love my bishop. <laughs> <laughs> and he's the one who has really pushing me to talk about that kingdom of God language because he's doing it too. It's about community and it's about allowing things like compassion and hope and need to drive our decisions instead of how much is it going to cost and how much money can we make, which is a pretty radical concept these days. It certainly is. I guess I'm lost in thought on the, you know, the idea again of this idea of the, the sign and the symbol, you know, what is, what is pointing and what is being pointed to. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you talk about church as structure, so often we get lost in the defining of that structure or mm -hmm. believing that the structure is mm -hmm. um, what it's pointing towards. And I like the language of, of um, this tends to loosen people's concrete minds up a little bit when we use language like God image. Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, and, okay. And that, um, but that... I, but I don't know. I mean, I think sometimes we're, we're you know, at, at times rightfully sensitive to language and then sometimes we're too sensitive to it. You know, sure. About, yeah. You know, what gives you life and then let me do my work of asking what you mean. When, right. Yeah. When you're using your language and not just believe that I know. Mm -hmm. 
and that's actually been a function, I think, of our friendship in a lot of ways that, you know, you and I having this kind of, who is it that said the ping pong match back and forth of the psychological ping psychological pong, psychological ping pong <laughs> yeah. hunter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess I, I, as you're, as you're talking, I'm maybe selfishly wanting to, you know, you be the, you be the breaks, but just hear about kind of your experiences mm-hmm. you know, not, not so much the, what happened, but what was it like for you? So I guess one story that comes to mind um, that helped me at least be aware that I was in shock um, is uh, the week after we we came back, I guess on the 28th, Harvey was on a Friday. We did morning prayer in College Station on that Sunday, and I think we were back on the 28th. And... uh, not long after that, some friends came down and Kevin was who, you know, Kevin Schubert, a priest in Austin was with that crew. And, um, we're standing on the slab where my garage used to be before it blew away and looking at my house that had the roof knocked off and just belongings were still everywhere. And I'm just like looking around and like so glad my friends are there. And, um, you know, we had done some work that day that I felt good about and we were having a beer and, and he just put his arm around me and just started crying and said, you lost your home. And I hadn't been able to cry really yet. And at that point I just, that like from that point on, I, I cried not, and, and I got used to it pretty quickly because everybody else was crying too. All around town, you'd just be like, how's your house? And, or no, <laughs> you just see someone and realize that they're alive and just start weeping and give them a hug. And then eventually, how's your, what's your house like? Not how's your house? All the houses were in bad shape. So it was early on it was so raw and but but we were also everybody was in a state of shock um and kevin kind of helped me see how bad it was in that moment i was using a lot of humor for myself not about other people's houses but um you know when laura and i got back we we found a bb gun and a pitchfork and did this funny picture in front of the rubble of our house, like we were American Gothic, you know, (laughs) we were doing stuff like that in the midst of this just horrible situation. But the, so yeah, so lots of crying, man. I mean, everybody, everybody you had talked to. So it was so overwhelming again, that like, too much energy at once and uh, I used I used everything that I'd learned I have been using everything that I've learned along the way I mean I use my collaborative processes to help community leaders talk to each other mm-hmm. and I use my own psychological work to pay attention to what's going on with me even when I 
even when I'm reacting in unhealthy ways, drinking too much or whatever, like I'm, I can be conscious of that and be like, okay, <laughs> let's rein it in. Like, um, the grace throughout has outweighed the destruction and grace. Let's do some definition, right? Um, in my confirmation class when I was 12, um, Mrs. Krauss taught me that, taught me that <laughs> grace is an outward and visible sign of inward and spirit. No, <laughs> I'm, I'm messing up the definition. The sacraments are outward and visible signs of inward and spiritual grace. So sacraments like communion, I don't want to, I'm trying not to introduce more words to have to define. You know my, you know my approach now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so sacraments are those things that communion and baptism but the definition is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. And, uh, it's, it's those, those things that we participate in to see what's happening inside and the grace piece of that grace, the, the way she, Mrs. Krause taught us about grace is she gave us a gift and she was like, you know, what I'm giving you this gift. We said, no, no reason. It's just a gift. You don't have to do anything for it. You don't have to pay me back. It's just a gift. Wow. That's grace. Hmm. So the grace through all this has outweighed the destruction. So people showed up with food. I ate so much, so many brisket tacos. <laughs> That's a good one. I ate fried <laughs> shrimp because people saved it from their freezer. I ate all kinds of stuff for months. People showed up from this group from Wisconsin showed up. They drove down from Wisconsin with their, what they called skid steers, which uh, in Southeast Texas, we just call bobcats. <laughs> Those little mini bulldozers. And they drove all over town, helping people move rubble out of their driveway and pile it up by the street. And they slept in their trucks I tried to offer them a place to sleep. They're like, nah, we'll just sleep in our trucks. And people have given us so many donations to help us, you know, with things like homes for displaced Marlins and, um, giving, you know, small grants away to people just to get them through and to rebuild our church. We've got rebuilding needs. People have just given and given and given. And the community, just the love and community. I mean, like those hugs with tears early on. We don't do that anymore. You know, we're kind of past that phase. But still, you know, you were with me in the grocery store. We stop and talk to each other. Yeah. And if we're, and even if somebody's just familiar and we don't know their name, we're likely to say, "Hey, how's it going?" So there's a. Uh, there's an element of grace um, and that's that's present that's it's outweighed the destruction it's 
it's not paying the bills. <laughs> I mean, it's not, it hasn't rebuilt everything. It is paying the bills actually, but it's, I mean, it hasn't put it, it hasn't made everything back how it was, but it's made, it's brought a qualitative difference to life. Um, in this, in, on this Island, in this community. I always, I've shared this with you so many times. I always loved the, your work involves paying attention to your life, that your life experiences, paying attention in a particular day. Cause on Sunday you're going to talk about it. Right. Mm -hmm. Try to find some meaning in something that, mm -hmm some random occurrence or major event or something. And I always loved that about what you do. And we've kind of, you know, in our psychological ping pong gone back and forth <laughs> about what we both do. But I, I, you know, you're so in these experiences at mm -hmm. the epicenter of something. Mm -hmm. And as a, a priest, m my understanding of what you already do is you're at the epicenter of a lot of things in people's lives. And mm -hmm. as you referenced earlier, those, big events and right. life and death and, and you know, uh, profoundly uh, everyday experience, profound everyday experiences, yet profoundly extraordinary experiences Yeah, that, uh, right. that happen every day. Mm -hmm. um, and I, and I remember the, as you said that I remember when you and I talked just after it happened, the, that that idea that you said to me, you know, everybody talks with tears in their eyes. Yeah, and uh, I've of course envisioned that and and um, seeing it today, you know, and it's a it's a powerful. You've been affected by something powerful. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I feel foolish saying that, but I guess that's just for me, you know, yeah. to notice. You're how, just naming what you saw, yeah. right? Yeah. So you said it earlier. Um, I, I, trauma, mm -hmm. you know, I'm interested in this definition that Jim gave you and, um, how, how are you seeing it affect the community? What are you noticing about hmm. the community hmm. at large? Yeah. Well, I mean, so let's start with some of the people who rode out the storm. Mm -hmm. There were about 60 I believe 60 or 80 people who stayed on the island. There's a mandatory evacuation. However, some people chose to stay on the island. And that included some first responders who were bunkered down in some substantial quarters. But it also uh, included Frank Carter, who's 98 and um, has lived on this island a long time. And he... I because I know Frank, I think he would have been okay going in the storm. Um, but he, he's also said, ah, oh, it wasn't too bad because <laughs> he's, he's, he, just because of who he is, that's his, that's his persona, but he's changed. I mean, and his son who wrote it out with him has changed and the people who were, you know, stacked their couch on top of their, um, dining room table. And then their, 
their mattress on top of their couch because the waters got so high in their house and they were trapped. They're changed. They're messed up. I mean, we're all messed up. I mean that lovingly. I don't mean they're they're broken. I just mean it's it's affected us psychologically. You can see it in their eyes. You can hear it in the way they talk. You can probably notice something in me. I don't know. Um, but people are different. It 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 rattled us, especially the ones who stayed here. Um, and and again, the balance, the healing, I think, has been coming when we have a party to give a family an RV, and the cel- those celebrations, and when we get together on the beach for the first surf competition, like you, you know, there's still that depth and that um, awareness of what we've been through, but to do those things um, is healing. So I'm, you know, I, I, I want to be a part of inviting people to pay attention and be intentional about how we move forward through this. I mean, that's part of, besides being able to provide financial and material resources for people, to me, the most important thing or the more important thing is like, who are we going to be after we get the island, the buildings rebuilt? Who are we, what are we going to, what's going to be changed? How are we going to care for the, um, the, the locals who are working and struggling to, to pay rent? How are we going to be different with each other in our community? And, um, I think, uh, I'm trying to do that, you know, part of my priestly role, pay attention to what's going on, mm-hmm. notice the sacred moments, all that being present with people, um, is, is just to help, to help. I hope it's helpful to remind myself and others not to get mad at each other because we're all mad at Harvey. I mean, we're really mad at Harvey, but Harvey's gone. That storm came and went. And we're still living with the, the trauma of it. Um, early on, one of the playful ways we made a sacramental presence um, is I hung a punching bag in our parish hall because we didn't have any drywall on the ceiling. So we had all these exposed rafters and I bought a punching bag and put duct tape around it and wrote Harvey on it. <laughs> I invited people to punch Harvey. And then on the back of it, I wrote something like, um, you know, take a punch at this bag. Don't punch other people. And then, um, the way you're going to be, the way you'll start feeling better about Harvey is by taking care of your neighbor, Mm. you know, just to, because we are, we carry, I mean, we're in this retreat, we're talking about those forces that are at work in us, uh, that we're usually, or oftentimes unconscious of. And there's a Harvey, we've got a Harvey complex. I mean, there's a bundle of energy from that history that we're all carrying with us. And it's powerful right now. And so to, when people get frustrated and when people lash out, 
to try to be available to steer back toward a way of being conscious about it. Like, um, you're really expressing anger at the city manager right now. The city manager didn't invite Harvey to come. He's actually helping us put the city back together. Can can we move more toward an awareness of of not beating up on a city manager and get? It's okay to be mad at Harvey. Like I'm pissed off at Harvey at that event. I know it's not Mother Nature's. Um, I know Mother Nature wasn't lashing out at us. It just was. It was just a storm, but I'm still mad about it. I mean, it's still frustrating that our town got torn up. So it's okay to, I mean, I feel okay about being mad about that, but I shouldn't take it out on the people around me. They didn't do it. So raising that, trying to raise that awareness, trying to help people under, er, trying to help people be in conversation about what suffering means and how to find meaning through this suffering. Yeah. You're actually reading my mind there about, um, so just to share a funny experience amidst all this was Kip. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Kip at the gap. Yep. (laughs) One of the coolest Kip Shannon bars in the, in the world. (laughs) Um, Kip, uh, James showed me this truck, Kip's truck. And I mean, did the, did the top of the truck fly off? I think that I, I, the, I think so. I think it got, so if you can imagine, uh, uh, you know, a seventies model, um, GMC or Dodge or, you know, some, some truck and the, 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 the roof, the ceiling, the entire, like the cab cab is off. So it's this open, uh, concept yeah (laughs) yeah and uh and you know it's got all kinds of fun uh, additions on their flags and down the down the sides if on each side it's written nice try harvey nice try harvey (laughs) yeah and so i see some of that you know we have even a participant here that port 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 is strong or port is strong right and the similar thing of course we saw in houston um, this kind of immediate um, cohesion mm-hmm. amongst the community, and, yeah. and if I'm if I'm listening to a certain thread that you've been talking about through our conversation today, I, I'm I'm struck by how how much it's about community, mm-hmm. and I, I'm 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 hearing in what you're saying that you're finding this divine presence, uh, you know, God as you in in your frame and in um, in community, right, and in relationship, so the in between places, in between people, in mm-hmm. between, um, and and your your I guess that's just a the other thought that comes to mind is that um, term you just introduced to me, the um, South African term I think Ubuntu Ubuntu yeah yeah would you say something about that yeah I was. Yeah, so Ubuntu is a is a. Um, I learned it in South Africa. I believe it's a Zulu term, and it means I am because we are. So it's a, and it's as a Westerner, 
I contrast that with, I think, therefore I am. So it's a way of understanding my being like, who am I? Well, I am because we are, it's, it's about relationship and it's about my identity being in the midst of community, finding my bearings in the midst of community. And, um, yeah. So the, the, I was going to say that I have a friend who lived in Hawaii for a while and I think it was on Kauai, one of the storms that rolled through there. Um, before the storm, there were Howleys, which are the mainlanders that come over and there were the, the locals. And after the storm, it, you were there, we were there for this hurricane or you weren't there for the hurricane. Mm-hmm a new definition of community. Did you suffer through that with us or have you come since? Because if you came since, you don't get it. You don't get who we are. And, um, you know, growing up on the Gulf coast my whole life, I, I understand, I know generally when the hurricanes came through and that does, they do define us. They define our, our communities. Mm -hmm. I, you know, we were in Ike together. Yeah. So we've got that bond. We suffered that together. Um, and now we've got Hurricane Harvey. And one of the most challenging things since Harvey has been people who show up who have no idea what we went through and needing as a priest to have compassion and fold them into the community. And sometimes it's really hard. Sometimes it's really challenging. I don't know how to. And then, um, you know, sometimes they ask questions that I don't want them to ask. Or I get tired of answering the same questions. So that our community has been reformed. And I'm hopeful that as we move forward together, we can do it in a very intentional way. And, And for me make a place that looks a little more like the kingdom of God Hmm. where we care for each other and we lift up the lowly and we trust in a spiritual dimension. That's not always logical, but it's about compassion and, and care. Well, I'm sensitive to your time because you have to run a group in one minute. Oh goodness. (laughs) (laughs) I just saw that. So thank you for, um, for working this time out today. Thank you. I really appreciate it. There was a bear It turned into a bird And then my mother Asked me if I'd heard That down the trail to the parking lot Find the third car It'll carry you far The pelican dove And became a ray And my father Paddled by to say Catch this next one It'll take you in Just be careful 
carry a pen When the cactus flowers bloom In the bright shade of the treasure under your nose on the shelf in the grocery store rows when the cactus flowers bloom in the bright shade of the moon just imagine that Yeah. 